Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics, which are going to educate and empower others. And give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, friends. Hello, hello. We are at the beginning of the new school year, and it's interesting, um, <laughs> to say the least. It feels like we just ended the school year. And, yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like summer tends to just, especially for us, and I think for some people, too, who have kids in multiple schools, or um, maybe you work in a school and you have kids in another school district, like, nothing seems to overlap anymore the way it used to. Like, there doesn't right. seem to be one set summer. I think July, most people are off other than like year round schools, but we have so many different start times and end times that, yeah, it's wild. And with that, we actually wanted to have a part two with Dr. Jamie Jones, which we couldn't fit in at the end of last year because we had Jack Robinson on um, and we broke his episode up into a part one and part two and we just had a fascinating conversation about Andrew F and where special education law essentially is, is going. But we did want to kind of finish out and round out. And we're so grateful for JB to come back on to our podcast so that we can really get into, you know, why do districts even use standardized testing for kiddos? I, I've gotten this. I've asked this at many IEP meetings, the answers we can get into will probably boggle your mind. But Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming back for your part two. You're very welcome. So happy to be here. So I know we've talked in the past about like concerns that we have with standardized tests and how sometimes they can be problematic. And especially when I think the biggest issue is like the misuse, right? That we sometimes have teams that use one standardized testing measure as like the holy grail, the end all be all the one piece of information we're going to use to make a decision, which obviously is problematic. Right. So I think it's important to always keep context in mind. And the context of standardized testing is that for typical kids, they really are the gold standard, right? It's an instrument you can use to compare a child's performance to other children of their same age and grade and kind of figure out how they're doing compared to their peers. The challenge is that none of them are well suited to kids who have learning differences. And they are, as you mentioned, often misused, right? So mm -hmm. there are hundreds of possible tests out there. And so certainly to begin with, kind of choosing ones that are more appropriate right? Some have actually do have norms for kids who are learning, you know, different or who are neurodivergent. But beyond that, when you do use a standardized test with a kid that you suspect is different from their peers, you need to be able to investigate that and take that into consideration, which I think often isn't done at school districts. Yeah, it's yeah, almost ignored. Right. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to bring up, because I, I actually was just finishing last night a, a due process complaint, and it's a child fine violation where 
you know, a student is being basically not found eligible for an IEP. And one of the concerns that's occurring is that this is a student who is a high functioning kiddo with autism, who's being tested on in a one-on-one setting, which I know standardized testing, you have to be, you know, there's certain protocols, you have to be like one-on-one, but the fact that it, these tests are heavily relied on and they are one-on-one setting students who have attention difficulties, sensory processing issues, where functioning in the classroom is very, very different than functioning one-on-one right. kind of makes these standardized tests not hundred percent accurate, but like, that's not necessarily noted. And I haven't seen in all protocols, it's not like there's a clear guidance for teachers or psychologists on, okay, if this is the case, here's what you should do. It's just, well, on this test, they performed average. So therefore we're done. That's all we have to consider. And that's problematic too. Well, and it's hugely problematic and you're right. That sort of instruction isn't in the manuals, right? Like that is something that is learned and developed in training. And as we talked last time, there are huge varying degrees of training for people that do assessments in the school district. And, you know, the point you mentioned about one-on-one is true for everybody, right? Yeah. Everybody's going to do better on a one-on-one setting. And the reality of most of us that test kids is we're pretty good at motivating kids. I'm pretty good at getting a kid's maximum performance. Mm -hmm. And I also mentioned that in my report, right? Like with me, (laughs) this is what I can do. That doesn't necessarily translate into the classroom. So why is very rare that a school psych would even say that? Like, it seems so obvious, but it's, you know, I always like to talk to the teacher as the teacher, like, oh, are you getting, you know, how is his attention in the class? Because the school psychologist should also be doing a observation during the class. And there should be several observations, not just one 20 minute. He seemed fine, right? Um, Right. Anyway, sorry, Amanda, what were you going to say? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so you mentioned it's not in the protocol manual, all these different factors. And so maybe a school psychologist who is fairly new to this, fairly young, maybe don't have as much experience. Why is it that there's not more guidance provided? Is it just that these, the companies that make these testing protocols, they assume that teachers are provided even more guidance and instruction and training by the school district or whoever they're trained on. Why isn't that like part of that protocol that like you need to consider X, Y, and Z and you need to use this when analyzing this data? And I think that's a great question. And I think the reality is when test makers and test publishers are designing instruments, they are not thinking about what's going to be most helpful to someone Mm. working in a school setting, right? They just publish the test and don't really know if the person using it works for the school district or is in private practice or works in the hospital. So Mm. the instructions tend to be much more generic. And I think the assumption is that whoever is learning to give this test has adequate and helpful supervision, right? Which we we Mm -hmm. know is not always the case. Yeah. Oh, and I, I find that school districts too often rely so heavily on, well, this is the protocol. This is the results of the tests. And so therefore that's what it is like almost believing 
that because we followed standardized protocol, this is accurate, right? And, and sometimes we even have those statements like in the assessment report that like we followed all protocols and therefore like this is a valid assessment. And then that's, that's where they leave it as we can 100% solely rely on this data. And then we don't go any further, which right. is a problem because we often then are seeing parents say, well, what about this? What about this concern? Or in the one observation that was done, maybe there was, you know, one instance, let's say inattention. So we're talking about attention, but then there's no like analysis. Okay. We had one observation where the child was inattentive. This testing measure showed us that the child was fully attentive to this because it was one-on-one and they gained rapport with the assessor and whatever, whatnot. And then, so like a parent would see that as, okay, well, there's a clear contradiction here, right? We might have attention challenges, but then you're saying there's not. And then what, so like if an assessor, a school psychologist goes through kind of this process, what should they be doing at that point? Like what kind of analysis should occur at this point? Well, what should be happening is a full integration of all the data, right? And I think Mm -hmm. part of the problem kind of gets back to what we talked about last time, which is level of training and ability to do that, right? In my experience, many school psychologists who are doing the assessment don't have that training. The training Mm -hmm. they have is at the level of this test measures this, here are your results, this test measures this, here are the results, and not really able to integrate all of that together, right? So what should be happening is a discussion that looks more like on this test, in this circumstance, this is how the child performed, right? All of these other variables go into that. If we compare that to how we do in the classroom, we can see that this is a child who performs their best in a one-on-one setting with unlimited time, right? Who is not going to be able to perform their best in a traditional classroom setting. And I think that doesn't happen. And the other thing that tends to happen is the manual will tell you, right? Test A measures X. And the assumption is it only measures X. And that's never Mm -hmm. true. That's not how brains work. And I think what often gets ignored are all of the other things that might impact performance. So, for example, on all of the time tests, regardless of what the manuals say they're measuring, they're Mm -hmm. going to be impacted by processing speed. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you don't take that into consideration, and if you don't do it again without the time limits to see how a person does, you're not really getting an accurate measure of whatever that particular skill is. Absolutely. I think that it's trying to reach a conclusion without looking at what the underlying skill is, right? And that's what's so difficult because when you have a goal in mind, an end goal of this child's going to qualify or not, it kind of skews things. Or if you have a huge caseload and you're just trying to get through the the testing and the assessments, which I've had off the record, several school psychologists say that they have so many, they're so impacted and, and things like that. But that's not something that I want to hear when we are trying to test a child that the district is saying there's no problem. And I think that that's what's difficult for parents is that a lot of times 
they're seeing a completely different kiddo in the classroom setting because of the teacher's correspondence with them. But then the testing, right, where they're putting all their eggs in this testing basket is like, no, kid's fine. I had a, a case last year where the teacher, you know, kept saying, I think I brought this up the last time. Oh, no, she's fine. She's doing great. Her grades are great. She can access blah, blah, blah. Then a couple, you know, they denied an IEP. A couple months later, end of the year, we're going through her report card. Parent requested a parent-teacher conference. And the teacher just really, like, very casually was just like, yeah, she doesn't, she's not going to get an IEP in elementary school. But in junior high, like, once she's behind, like, you'll probably get an IEP. And it was like, what? You know that she, it's not like you get a bump on the knee and all of a sudden you have a learning challenge, right? Like it was just so like heavily, like mom was beside herself. She's like, why wouldn't she stand up for her at the IEP meeting where we were talking about her unique learning challenges? Why would she say she's doing fine, but then tell me, oh no, by the time she's in junior high, you'll probably get an IEP then. Like that I think is what's really frustrating. That's why, you know, we wanted to talk to you kind of in depth about the, the testing and the standardized testing because it just, for a lot of parents, it just seems really unnecessary for their child. Like we know what their unique learning challenges are, but yet it is still something that we're trying to measure the child against uh, normal and whatever normal means, right? Standardize the typical peer. And I think for parents of kiddos with unique needs, they're like, we, but I know my child's neurodivergent. (laughs) Like, why are we using this? And the response I've gotten a lot is, well, we need to measure something, right? The IEP will then kind of fill in the gaps so that the child can perform or at least have access to the curriculum. Yeah. Has that been your, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think part of the thing that be when they, they have that assumption, they go, you know, it seems unnecessary because it doesn't give the full picture. When I'm looking at like a really good assessment that's done maybe by a clinical psych or a neuropsych, the standard assessments are done, but many more testing measures are done. And then the analysis part. So I think where it seems like standardized tests are bad or unnecessary or not helpful is when we have one isolated test where these other factors aren't considered and we're not looking at the full picture. But if we use multiple testing measures and we are looking at the full picture it can often be helpful for a kiddo where maybe we don't know where to go or we don't know what needs to be supported. Maybe they don't have a full diagnosis or maybe they do and maybe they're very bright. So that standardized test can show us that very capable. So like, I think there's that, that kind of push and pull, right. Of the standardized test that there are some good uses, but like they have to be done correctly. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, at the beginning, they have their value, but it never makes sense to give one, right? One of anything isn't going to give you much information. You always should give them in connection with multiple tests, measuring multiple areas. And when you know that someone is functioning differently for whatever reason, right? Whether it's processing speed or attention or sensory overwhelm, you have to be able to take that into consideration. And I think that that is lost somewhere, right? I don't know if the team knows that they can do that, if the school psychologist themselves knows that they can do that. It just kind of seems like plug and play. And I also think a lot of times 
I get it. That's probably like the hundredth evaluation that you've done, right, in your career. But this is the first time potentially that a parent is seeing this testing. And, you know, when they do have questions and they do kind of have this this curious line of questioning of like, oh, why would you do that? Why would you? I feel like it's they're just very short, curt answers. And I don't know if it's because they don't know the answer, right? The school staff doesn't know the answer or if, or it's just kind of like, this is the generic answer that I'm going to give you. Like, well, that's just what the protocols say. And it's like, well, let's look at what the protocols say, right? You know, the yeah. loss is something different than what the protocols are going to say, which we've kind of find are kind of a general, almost like skeletal recipe, right? Like, well, protocols when you see- are mm-hmm. created by companies who sell these tests. Right. And right. just like anything, just because something is sold doesn't mean it is legally like sufficient, right? Or that it even is accurate. We know all the time that testing measures have to be changed or, you know, we find out later that like certain teaching methodologies aren't aren't the best. And so, you know, because with science and learning and research, we discover better ways to do it. So I think that is something that we don't think about enough that like these protocols are like profits to companies right? Like these tests, there's a different, there's a reason why there's so many, um, there's different kinds or different names, like not to say that they're all bad or that, you know, it's only profit based and that we shouldn't use them. But like, we have to consider that too, that we shouldn't use a testing protocol as like, well, that's the law. Cause it's not. Right. And I think also, you know, when people say to me, it's the protocol, I, I tend to respond with a question, which is what protocol and whose protocol, right? Mm. Because The testing companies don't say, give these three tests. They say, here's our sample of tests that measure a variety of things. Pick whichever you want, as long as you're spending money at our company, right? Like, because you're right, there's that piece of it. And so the decision about what tests to give to which students is a question being asked and answered typically by school districts, not necessarily, you know, the specific school psychologist. So it may not be their decision. Yeah. And so, So, I mean, that's part of it too. Like why, why are you continually giving this not so good test? Right. So I, we recently got a question through our Instagram from a teacher and we've gotten this before about resources, like where can teachers go if they want to learn like more about the law or more about how they can better like follow their obligations. So if a teacher or a school psychologist is listening to this and they're thinking, okay, well, this is all great. It's all helpful information. It's good for me to know, but like, where do I go from here? How do I, like, how can I better my practices? Where can they go to like find out more about the testing protocols that they're using and like, where can they find out more information, like to, to the better themselves, right. To learn about like best practices or so to speak, other than like training that their school districts give them or don't give them. Right. Because that's not consistent. Like if a teacher or a school psychologist on their own, like wants to do their own research or get resources, what, what's kind of the best way for them to do that? So I think most professional organizations that are testing affiliated have information like that. So the, my board, the American Board of Pediatric Neuropsychology, has resources on testing and sort of which tests do what and how to better integrate. 
there are also trainings continually being done by the various school assessment and neuropsych and clinical psych assessment boards. And also, I think just, I know very few people, I like, I enjoy reading research articles. I know that's not true for a lot of people, <laughs> but I also think there's a, a lot of continual good research being done looking at the use of traditional testing measures in non-traditional ways, right? Around mm. testing limits and looking at all the aspects of a, of a specific test. And Dr. Jones, what is a question or if, if parents are kind of hitting a wall, like when you explain the testing to, to parents, has there ever been like a good question that they ask? We always like to have kind of a, a call of action, right? Something that the parents can do because at times it does feel helpless. You feel helpless as a parent, right? Sure. Um, when you have... 10 people from the school district saying something. Is there something that comes to your mind that you can share with our listeners that they can either ask or just learn more about um, from the IEP team directly? I I hate to put on one more thing, right, on the invisible load of of parents that they have to do, but what's something that you think would be helpful for them to know outside of, hey, maybe you should get a a private assessment because we always recommend that. (laughs) Is there anything else you could think of? You know, I think that just follow-up questions on the what went into picking these tests and what does this mean? Mm. So, and these are going to vary depending on the family and the circumstance, but questions along the lines of, well, if X had happened, how would that have affected my child's performance? Right. Mm, So if someone had interrupted the testing, what would you predict would have happened? Right. Mm -hmm. Based on what Mm -hmm. you observed in the classroom. If you had given a test that measures this thing, whatever this thing is, Mm -hmm. how do you think they would have done? Oh, I like that. I like that because then it kind of goes to how what I said that sometimes parents, it feels like they're seeing a different kid, right? <laughs> yeah. The and then on the testing, and that kind of goes to that because then it, it connects the two, right? I think oftentimes right. the school psychologists are very conclusory. They're just like, well, this testing says this, so the child doesn't qualify. That's just it, you know, and they fail in, to take into consideration everything else we've seen in the past 10 years this movement towards, you know, I used to get conclusions from school psychologists, right? The child qualified. And now I'm seeing this is an IEP team decision. And it's just like, what? Like, if that was actually true, then I feel like a lot more kiddos would qualify than are actually qualifying. It's kind of like the scenario that we a lot of attorneys at bigger law firms, it's, it's this move to unlimited PTO, which at first blush, you're like, oh, amazing, I can take PTO. But then the culture is so toxic. It's like, well, how, you know, you really shouldn't be taking unlimited, like you really shouldn't be taking right. any. And it's just like, that's how it feels like, well, it's an IPT decision, but that's not true. Right. Um, so I right. like the questions that do kind of present hypotheticals, but or based on real life things that are observed in the classroom. So that's a way, parents, that you can use what the teacher is telling you on the side, right, about the child's behavior, about what they're seeing in the classroom. You can use that to ask these questions, right? Because if at times when you 
sometimes ask the teacher to kind of elaborate it. It's like a different story, which is unfortunate, but it happens. But this is a way that you can still bring in that information that you've gotten and use it almost in a hypothetical situation where, you know, you can really engage in a conversation. And I think that if you're still getting vague answers, to me, that just means that maybe the school psychologist wasn't fully prepared or we don't have enough data. So maybe we need to dig in and get additional evaluations. I think that's a great way to kind of segue into requesting additional testing, which would be helpful for a lot of these cases that have kiddos that just seem really different. And I also think a good question for parents to keep in mind, and it's not necessarily about assessment per se, but more about the IEP meeting. And one of the questions I frequently recommend the families I work with ask is to the teachers, which is in as nice and an understanding of a way as possible, asking the teacher what they're planning to say at the IEP. Mm. Because the story Mm. you told, Mm -hmm. right, is not Mm -hmm. uncommon. And I think Mm -hmm. part of that is teachers are in a horrible bind. Right. Mm -hmm. Like on one hand, they really want to help their students. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, they're employed by the district. Right. 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 And so I think not uncommon for parents to kind of be blindsided by Mm -hmm. teachers who have said things to them personally that they then don't speak up and say that in an IEP meeting. Yeah. And that really damages the relationship. It really does. I completely understand that the teachers you know, point of view. But I mean, if you're not going to say anything nice, then don't say anything at all, because it really puts a bad look onto you as the teacher saying something to the parent and then not backing them yeah. up, uh, especially because there's 10, 15 people sometimes on a, you know, now Zoom. Um, and then it's just the parent and maybe their partner, right? Maybe their spouse, right. maybe a friend. And it's really difficult when everybody is saying the sky is black and you're like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's blue. Right. And the teacher told me once that it was, blue, you know, but I think that that, yeah, that's really important because it's just really damaging for the religion. And then the parent doesn't trust the teacher moving forward. And yeah. that's your first line of defense, right? Like the teacher is on the ground and that's awful. And, you know, I wanted to also mention that at the end of the last school year, I had a teacher and I think she just was getting progressively more and more um, upset, taking things personally via this kind of email exchange with parents. This was before I got involved. And I could just tell, you know, at one point she's like, you know, I'm just going to help all the other kids. I helped him so much throughout the year with everything. And you could Mm. tell that she just felt like the mom was criticizing her, which was not the case whatsoever. But it was almost like, I don't want you to be resentful of my child. If you needed more help, You never said anything to me, the parent, right? And, or, you know, so that I can advocate for you, right? And my child at the IEP. And then you never said anything at the IEP meeting. And so we don't ever want our teachers. We we saw during the pandemic, we saw a mass exodus, you know, two years into the pandemic of teachers and district staff just leaving because they were completely burnt out and did not feel appreciated. And that's not, you know, what we want you to have the right amount of support that you need for your students and particularly the ones that we can give you support for the the kiddos on the IEP. So I I really think that 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 is wonderful and just a very like, hey, what are you planning on saying? You need the help. I can I can say that at the IEP meeting. I get that you're in a position that you cannot. I can't. Right. 
And then I just need you to agree. I just need to say yes. (laughs) Right. Well, and and even phrasing it like that, right? Like, so you've shared a lot of information with me. What Mm -hmm. are you going to be comfortable saying at the IEP? And what would you prefer I say? Yeah, I love that. Because then it's, you know, it's like, what are you comfortable with? And then you can kind of devise a a game plan from there. Um, Sometimes there's people that have never been involved and don't even know the child, right? A district administrator or facilitator may be there, right? And that's difficult when they're putting their two cents in and they don't even know the child. So acknowledging that and saying like, look, I I think that there's going to be some people there that I don't really know. I, I don't know if they're your bosses, but like, yeah, what do you feel comfortable sharing? Because, you know, I would like to bring up A, B, and C or, or whatnot. I, I think that's a wonderful idea. And it doesn't have to be a one-to-one, draw a long drawn out thing. You know, it could just be an email exchange or even just that pickup, right? Like, hey, can you, you don't have to answer me now. Can you kind of think about what you feel comfortable sharing? You know, you've talked about his behavior and things like that. I just want to know what I am going to share and like what you can. Um, that's wonderful. I love that. Oh, goodness. Dr. John, I know we've already taken up a lot of your time <laughs> with our part one and our part two, but I we could have a part billion with you because I, I just think the way that you have your experience privately and in the schools and then, you know, the advocacy that you you do do for for your students, for your clients is tremendous and you just make things easy to understand. And we appreciate you. Yeah, I think you. just the breakdown of explaining things, because oftentimes that's, I think even for teachers, sometimes for, for, for parents, especially um, the, the why gets lost and the, the breaking down and understanding either why we do things or why we don't do things. So, you know, we're really grateful you were able to come on and we were able to talk through this topic and for our listeners, if you have any more questions kind of about this process, about assessments, feel free to send us DMs or emails, you know, and we can always maybe do another Q&A or something if, if we get a lot of, lot of questions. Well, it was my pleasure it. and I'm glad I could be helpful. Oh, thank you, Dr. Jones. We appreciate you. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this part too. Hang in there with this new school year and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you.